You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of the book Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, by Douglas Waller. Lincoln's Spies examines Abraham Lincoln's use of clandestine services during the Civil War, focusing on four operatives. There's the famous detective, Alan Pinkerton. Richmond socialite, Elizabeth Van Lu. Lafayette Baker, a handsome Union officer with the shady past. And the superbly effective intelligence chief, George Sharp. Lincoln's Spies is a fresh, fascinating look at a too often overlooked aspect of the Civil War. It's available wherever you get your books. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 289 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, we had just talked about the Battle of Port Gibson, which, as it turned out, was really two separate fights along the Rodney and Brunsburg roads, several miles west of the town of Port Gibson. As we said last time, the Federals emerged victorious from the day-long battle, and then Ulysses S. Grant moved quickly and boldly to exploit this initial success. To do so, though, he'd have to, um, well, ignore some inconvenient orders he'd been given. You see, since leaving Memphis and moving down the Mississippi River four months earlier, Grant had been under strict orders from General-in-Chief Henry Halleck to cooperate with Nathaniel Banks down in Louisiana. And as y'all will recall, we used episodes 284 and 285 to talk about Banks' activities down in Louisiana. Right. Well, that winter, while sitting in the mud opposite Vicksburg, Grant had fully intended to comply with Halleck's orders. So he developed plans to either float McPherson's Corps from Lake Providence to the Red River or to march McClernand's Corps down the east side of the Mississippi River to Port Hudson. Whether Grant sent McPherson or McClernand to join Banks would depend on how things played out. However, recent events had changed everything, at least in Grant's mind. Rather than send one-third of the Army of the Tennessee south to join Banks, 
which would mean Grant would have to surrender the tremendous advantage he just gained by landing on the east bank of the Mississippi River, Grant decided instead to strike out inland and advance on Vicksburg with his entire force and leave Banks to fend for himself. As y'all will recall, when we left Nathaniel Banks at the end of episode number 285, he just reached Alexandria on the Red River and found out that Grant wouldn't be sending him any help. We closed out that episode with the question, what had happened? Well, what had happened was that Grant, up in Mississippi, had decided to advance on Vicksburg with his entire force and leave Banks to fend for himself down in Louisiana. Exactly. Okay, so Grant settled on this course of action even though he knew full well that it would cause dismay in Louisiana and produce consternation in Washington. However, having made his decision, he was determined to pursue this course of action until he'd achieved success and captured Vicksburg. Having made his decision, the most pressing question facing Grant was which way to turn now. The road north from Port Gibson led directly to Vicksburg, but Grant's appreciation of the lay of the land argued against that route, because after forcing a crossing of the Big Black River, his army would be hemmed in in a narrow triangle of land bordered by the Mississippi River on the west and the Big Black to the east. Militarily, this would severely limit his options because the rivers would restrict Grant's ability to maneuver, and the maze of hills and ravines that we've talked about before would let the Confederate commander, John Pemberton, take advantage of the terrain to set up successive defensive lines, which Grant would have little choice but to attack head-on as he bludgeoned his way forward, battering his way toward Vicksburg. And so instead of heading straight for Vicksburg, Grant chose an indirect approach. He decided to move inland in a northeasterly direction and use the Big Black River as a shield on his left. Grant's immediate objective would be the Southern Railroad of Mississippi, which, despite its name, ran east-west between Vicksburg and the state capital of Jackson. If Grant could break the railroad between Vicksburg and Jackson, then Pemberton would be cut off from supplies and reinforcements. The Southern had already been the target of Grierson's cavalry raid, but Grant had no way of knowing whether the Federal horsemen had done any significant damage to the railroad. They hadn't. Right. So, at any rate, it's pointing out the obvious that a bold thrust inland toward the railroad would take the Army of the Tennessee away from Porter's gunboats on the Mississippi and deep into hostile territory. But Grant believed the essential first step toward ultimate success was that Vicksburg be cut off and isolated. Once that was accomplished, he intended to turn west and close in on the rebel stronghold.
Grant knew he was about to set out on a very risky venture, and he didn't wish to set out marching into the interior of Mississippi until his entire army was united. So after the Battle of Port Gibson, Grant settled McClernand's and McPherson's Corps in the vicinity of Willow Springs, east of Grand Gulf, and ordered Sherman to join them without delay. Over the next few days, Sherman's 15th Corps marched southward through Louisiana from Millican's Bend, Young's Point, and Duckport to Hard Times. The troops made good time on roads that had been partially submerged just a few weeks earlier. Because the hard work of corduroying roads and building bridges had been done by McClernand's men in April, the soldiers of the 15th Corps enjoyed the luxury of sightseeing as they tramped along. One Midwesterner described the route by saying, quote, Sometimes for miles the road was shaded by beautiful live oaks and catalpas in full bloom, or bordered by a tangled hedge of red and white roses, forming a barricade of beauty eight feet high. Sherman's Federals were impressed by the sight of the large, lovely homes that dotted the shore of Lake St. Joseph. A soldier in the 51st Illinois said, These residences, mostly of modern construction and by far the most costly and elegant we had seen in the South, were filled with every appliance of taste and domestic utility. Another Yankee wrote about the ill treatment dished out to these costly and elegant homes. Quote, the lords of these manors had deserted them in haste, and a few slaves only remained in charge. The troops that had passed before us left proofs of their customary lack of respect for the deserted property of the rebels, and at our noon halts, groups of tired, dust-covered soldiers were to be seen seated on satin upholstered chairs amid roses or in the shade of trees and eating their bacon and hardtack from marble-topped tables or rosewood pianos. Devastation followed in the wake of Sherman's Corps, and all but a few of the stately civilian residences along its route of march were burned to the ground. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions. 
a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. You may be thinking that with Grand Gulf now in federal hands, there was no need for Sherman's troops to march all the way down the West Bank to Disharoon and cross the Mississippi River to Bruinsburg. And dear listener, you'd be right. And so when the 15th Corps reached hard times on May 6th, David Dixon Porter's flotilla of gunboats, transports, and barges ferried men, animals, and equipment across to Grand Gulf. From there, Sherman's troops hastened inland to join their comrades at Willow Springs. With the welcome arrival of Sherman's men, the Army of the Tennessee was concentrated in one spot for the first time in months. That was a good thing for Grant, but he knew he couldn't supply his army for any length of time from across the river, that is, from the Louisiana shore, which meant that to carry out his plan of advancing inland and isolating Vicksburg, he'd need to have his men and animals live off the Mississippi countryside. But he did not immediately sever his line of supply and communications, as is often stated in the history books and as Grant implied in his memoirs. Instead, Grant kept heavily escorted trains of hundreds of wagons moving up behind his army from Grand Gulf for two weeks after he crossed the river. Grant's lieutenants, particularly Sherman, were anxious about this unorthodox logistical situation, but Grant explained to Sherman that, quote, I do not calculate upon the possibility of supplying the army with full rations from Grand Gulf. What I do expect is to get what rations of hard bread, coffee, and salt we can and make the country furnish us the balance. The memory of the bountiful foraging that took place some months earlier during the withdrawal from northern Mississippi in the aftermath of Van Dorn's Holly Springs raid was obviously still fresh in Grant's mind. Now, beginning at Bruinsburg, where some of the first soldiers ashore commandeered horses for Grant and his staff, the Federals then went on to collect food, forage, vehicles, mounts, draft animals, cooking utensils, bedding, and nearly everything else they needed as they moved along through the Mississippi countryside. As Grant hoped, the Mississippi countryside here, so far untouched by the hard hand of war, proved perfectly capable of sustaining an army on the march. The only problem was distribution. There was no way to ensure that every soldier received an equal share of the spoils, and so some units lived well off the fat of the land, while others endured a more Spartan diet. But no one wearing a blue uniform starved, and the army kept moving along. With Sherman up, 
Grant's army resumed operations on May 7, 1863. Back east in Virginia, Fighting Joe Hooker had just withdrawn the Army of the Potomac back across the Rappahannock River after getting whipped by Robert E. Lee at the recently concluded Battle of Chancellorsville. Here in Mississippi, about 900 or so miles to the southwest, as Grant prepared to march farther inland and thrust his army into the heart of the Magnolia State, he sent a farewell message of sorts to Washington. Informing Halleck of his plans, Grant added in a rather casual, by-the-by sort of way that, quote, You may not hear from me again for several days. In their book, Vicksburg is the Key, Shea and Winchell write, quote, Over a 17-day period, from May 1st to May 17th, the Army of the Tennessee marched more than 200 miles, fought five battles, and drove the Confederates into the defenses of Vicksburg. Although often referred to as a 19th-century blitzkrieg, the pace of the Union advance was not particularly fast. The distance and sometimes the direction traveled each day were largely determined by, of all things, the availability of water. Shea and Winchell continue, noting, quote, No rain fell in central Mississippi during the first half of May, and by the time Grant left Willow Springs, smaller streams were beginning to run dry. Too much water in the soggy bottomlands had hampered Union operations throughout the winter and early spring. Now, finally on high and very dry ground, Grant found his movements dictated to some extent by the scarcity of water. Despite this unforeseen difficulty, Grant was pleased by the way the operation was unfolding. However, the view from the ranks was somewhat different. The Federal soldiers soon became exasperated with the trying conditions of the march and unimpressed with the people and places they encountered in central Mississippi. One Yankee expressed his feelings with a Hemingway-esque economy of words, writing, quote, Water scarce, weather hot, roads dusty, land poor, rations short, houses poor shabby things. Don't like the country. Despite hardships and grumbling, the Army of the Tennessee's morale remained high. The officers and men in the dusty blue columns believed that they had the rebels on the run. After leaving Willow Springs, Grant's army moved northeast on a broad front. McClernand's Corps was on the Union left, closest to the Big Black River. Sherman's Corps was in the center, and McPherson's Corps was on the right. This alignment is significant, and to those who give it a moment's thought, reveals quite a lot about Grant's perception of his subordinates' abilities and the role that they would play during the campaign. It also helps correct the popular image of both McClernand and McPherson. Right, because political general John McClernand is usually depicted as pompous, egotistic, inept, and reckless. Yet his 13th Corps had not only led the march through Louisiana on the west side of the Mississippi River, 
But now, here, as Grant's army pushed inland, McClernand's corps was at all times at the point of danger nearest Pemberton's Confederates. Contrary to Grant's later claim that he doubted McClernand's fitness for command, the evidence shows that he actually entrusted the energetic and aggressive Illinoisan with a high level of responsibility during the Vicksburg campaign. McClernand certainly had his flaws, but the fact is that he was an experienced commander in the Army of the Tennessee and could boast of an enviable combat record that stretched all the way back to Belmont. On the other hand, there was James McPherson, who had graduated first in the West Point class of 1853 and was the protege of Grant and Sherman. He was, however, the junior corps commander in the Army of the Tennessee and had precious little experience commanding troops in the field. In fact, in a mere 14 months, he had gone from first lieutenant to major general. According to Shea and Winchell, quote, This meteoric rise was based largely on his ingratiating personality, which he demonstrated while serving on Grant's staff during the Forts Henry and Donelson and Shiloh campaigns. Due to McPherson's inexperience as a field commander, Grant sought to shield him throughout the Vicksburg campaign by using the 17th Corps in a supporting role whenever possible. Fate, however, would shortly bring McPherson to the fore, and his performance would be less than stellar. Not surprisingly, Grant placed William Tecumseh Sherman, his most trusted lieutenant, in the center as the army pushed inland. In this vital central position, the 15th Corps could move left or right to support either McClernand or McPherson as circumstances dictated. Once the army had advanced and reached a line between Old Auburn and Raymond, Grant then planned to wheel to the north and strike the Southern Railroad in the vicinity of Bolton or Edwards Station, thus accomplishing his goal of severing Pemberton's line of communication and supply with Jackson to the east. Prior to leaving Willow Springs, Grant ordered McPherson to make a strong demonstration against Hankinson's Ferry, the point where the road between Port Gibson and Vicksburg crossed the Big Black. He hoped the diversion would keep Pemberton's attention focused south of Vicksburg, while the Federals aimed for the railroad to the east. But Pemberton was on the ball for once. As reports of Yankee troop movements arrived at his headquarters, he began to suspect that Grant was taking aim at the Southern Railroad. In response, Pemberton shifted his forces northward along the west side of the Big Black, roughly conforming to federal movements on the other side of the river, the east side, but he made no attempt to actually block Grant's advance. Pemberton's sole aggressive act was an order to Brigadier General John Gregg in Jackson to march about 15 miles southwest from the state capital to Raymond, and then strike the advancing Federals in flank or rear as they swept past toward the railroad. Just as an aside, but it's worth noting that while Pemberton called on Gregg to attack the Yankees with a single brigade of 3,000 men, he himself remained firmly on the defensive behind the Big Black with his main force, which was about 38,000 strong. Yep. Uh, Well, in any case... 
The morning of May 12th saw McPherson's Corps marching northeast on the road from Utica to Raymond. Shortly before 10 o'clock, a line of Federal infantry belonging to Major General John Logan's division topped a ridge and moved into the valley of 14 Mile Creek southwest of Raymond. Suddenly, cannon and musket fire erupted from the woods lining the nearby dry stream bed. McPherson's Federals had encountered Gregg's Confederates, and the first shots of the Battle of Raymond had been fired. We are, however, going to wait until the next show to get into all the goings-on at the Battle of Raymond. So, um, yeah, tune in next week when we'll continue with the story. That means it's time for this week's book recommendation, and we'll take this opportunity to remind you that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, by Douglas Waller. Yep, uh, a while ago we received an advanced reader's copy of Lincoln's Spies, and we're happy to find it's a riveting, fast-paced story that focuses on three men and one woman who provided valuable intelligence information to Lincoln and his generals. We actually weren't surprised we enjoyed Waller's newest book, though, since we were big fans of his previous book, Masters of the Air, about the 8th Air Force during World War II. Here in Lincoln's Spies, Waller has crafted a well-written account of the activities of Alan Pinkerton, George Sharp, Elizabeth Van Loo, and Lafayette Baker. I especially enjoyed reading about Elizabeth Van Loo, who was a Virginia heiress and ran a Union spy ring out of her Richmond mansion. Fascinating stuff, for sure. So, thanks to Simon & Schuster for sponsoring this episode of the podcast, and we're happy to recommend Lincoln Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation by Douglas Waller. It's available wherever you get your books. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information about how to support the podcast by enlisting in the Strawfoot Brigade, like David, Alex, Mark, Una, and David did this past week. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 92, which is about Grant's infamous General Orders Number 11 in December 1862, by which he directed that all Jews be expelled from his Department of the Tennessee. Yeah, uh, definitely not Ulysses S. Grant's finest hour. Uh, but we hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy that show. It's an interesting story. Then we also want to thank Ken for his donation this past week. And thanks to Scott for the book, Uh, Scott was one of the listeners who met with us in Gettysburg back in June, and now he's trying to get us to warm up to Dan Sickles. Uh, Yeah, we'll see. And then as we wrap up this show, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Okay. So thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to A History Podcast. 
Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Vicksburg campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.